This is a Sandy Boy Productions podcast. Hey, everybody. Welcome to Why Is Everyone Yelling with Lindsay Hine. I am your host, Lindsay, and I'm so grateful you are joining us today. I hope you find encouragement and support from this podcast every single week. And I am so excited about our guest, who is Julie Bogart. Now, Julie has a book called Raising Critical Thinkers, which is mainly what we focus on in this conversation, not only raising critical thinkers, but how to be critical thinkers ourselves. Julie provides passionate, compassionate exploration of what critical thinking is and how to hone this vital skill set in our children. She is the mother of five grown children and has so much wisdom to give us today. I resonated with so much she said, and we had a really candid conversation about what it's like to really think for ourselves in a world where information is constantly being thrown in our direction. If you enjoy this conversation with Julie, please share it with friends who you might think could enjoy it as well. Take a screenshot, share it on your social media. Uh, And if you could leave us a rating and review on iTunes or wherever you listen, that would be a huge help. Hey, I'm going to be down in Jacksonville, Florida for the Donna Marathon weekend. The weekend of February 3rd through 5th is coming right up. I'm doing the half marathon. If you are in the Jacksonville area or somewhere nearby, or hey, you just want a little weekend getaway to some warmer weather in Florida, come join me. This race benefits the Donna Foundation, which helps people walking through a breast cancer diagnosis and funds groundbreaking research through the Donna Foundation. Um, I'm going to have a meetup, a group meetup with a shakeout run and a meetup at a restaurant. And I would love to see you there. Uh, when you register, go to breastcancermarathon.com, use the code Lindsay10, and that will get you 10% off your reg- registration. Uh, all right, friends, if you have any questions, comments, suggestions for the show, send me an email, lindsay at sandyboyproductions.com. I would love to hear from you. All right, enjoy my conversation with Julie. Okay, Julie Bogart, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. I'm excited for this conversation. So excited for this conversation. Today, we're going to talk about raising critical thinkers in a digital age, which I'm so excited about. Uh, You're the mother of five yourself. You run the Brave Writers Workshop and, and you have several books out. Can you tell us a little bit about your background in teaching and writing? Yeah, absolutely. So I am originally a freelance professional writer and editor, and I also homeschooled my five kids. And during the years that I was educating them, I was pretty dissatisfied with the writing programs that existed. Uh, I had a friend who asked me to help her teach writing to her kids. And when I was looking at how writing was being taught, I just saw it as an epic fail. And so what I did is I ended up taking what I know about writing as a professional and how writing is taught to people who want to be paid to write. And I applied that to teaching children how to write. So I started a company in January of 2000, so 23 years ago, where I offered a whole different model for understanding the parent-child dynamic in the writing relationship. So instead of us just talking about punctuation, spelling, grammar, and formats, I really wanted to get at the essence of what a child wants to express 
And how does a parent or a teacher support that child in that self-expression without damaging their fragile self-esteem, their sense of voice that they really want to convey and instead only get like red letter marks? So that's how Brave Writers started. I have homeschooled my kids, as I said, for about 17 years. We also took part in public education during the high school years for several of my kids. And they are all now full-grown adults, married, some have kids. They've done varying amounts of college and grad school. And they seem like they've managed to turn out just fine. <laughs> so I got interested in thinking partly through my own journey. Um, thinking in particular became interesting to me at the dawn of the internet. Mm. I, re I remember getting on these homeschool discussion boards in my mid thirties, right when the World Wide web like cracked open <laughs> its doors, right? And we all flooded these rooms to support each other, offer advice, um, answer questions. But what shocked me is this homogeneous group with similar politics, religion, marital status, race, like all that stuff was similar. And we got into the gnarliest bloodbath fights over very picky things like breastfeeding versus bottle feeding, whether or not to have a VBAC, theological positions, political positions. And I found myself wondering, why does everyone think they're right? Mm. And if all they have to do is declare that they're right, why do they assume that will lead to everyone just falling in line? So it's two parts, right? First, I think I'm right. Secondly, I think, well, if I say what I know to be right, won't everyone just agree? And I just got fascinated with that. Why are we built that way? And what creates better conversations than that? Gosh, and it's so tough because this is all our kids will ever know. Right. So, you know, I grew up with, when I was in like high school, we had instant messenger and things like that. But it wasn't until probably 10 years ago when I felt like it was this constant stream all the time of information and things I need to form an opinion about, even though I don't even know what my opinion might be. I just feel like we're constantly receiving information and then we in turn have to have a thought about that, which is really challenging because it almost creates the space where you don't even have room to create your own original thoughts. That's exactly right. I think what happens today that is different than when I was growing up is that we believe that our thoughts need to be publicly understood in order for them to be valid. Mm. We also assume that every bit of information we get, we need to vote on. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. if we get a piece of information that contradicts what we think is true today, we aren't able to just hold space for that in our own mind and mull it over and allow it to sort of have its way with us for a little while because we feel called on to like it, dislike it, laugh at it, love it, you know, be afraid of it, hug it. It just depends on which social media platform you're on. But that carries over into our actual relationships. We start feeling required to disclose an opinion mm -hmm. just because someone asks us of it. I remember being a kid and I would read like a whole bunch of books on a topic. Nobody was asking me what I thought. Those books were just living in my mind. They had an opportunity to kind of influence or shape my thinking. I could react to them and no one would know my reactions. That's gone. 
We all feel required to post our favorite book list and what we thought of every book at the beginning of a new year. There's no room for like secrecy. That almost feels dysfunctional in our public culture now. Yeah, I was talking to my husband about this the other day. There's a a topic politically. I won't even talk about what it is, but that I feel very like, I don't know what I think. Mm. You know, I and I try so hard to see both sides and I'm left feeling like, I just don't know. Mm. And we were on a run and I was like, I feel like people don't allow themselves to just be in the middle and not not have a fully formed, hard, rock solid opinion on things anymore. And I, I want to I wanna know what I think, but I, I just don't know. And I think that's okay to say, you know, I just don't really know. Uh, it's the best way to begin. Yeah. In fact, I would I would take it a step further. The people who have strong opinions also don't know. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> a lot of us express an opinion without adequate data experience or understanding. And so part of what I was trying to help parents realize when I wrote Raising Critical Thinkers is that we're not just raising them. We have to learn how to be them ourselves first. Mm-hmm. So I was sort of writing the book with both audiences in mind, your children, but also you. And one of the places we have to start is understanding where our thinking or our opinions come from. Mm -hmm. They come from this intersection of what we've read or been exposed to. They come from our experiences that come through our bodies, like direct sensory observation. And they come through what I call encounters. Encounters are those experiences that shift the power dynamic that make you feel over your skis. Uh, Since you're a runner, I'm gonna use running for fun as an example. So imagine talking to someone who's never run a marathon and they have a strong opinion about how marathons are unhealthy. (laughs) It feels irritating, Mm -hmm. right? Because you've been running them, you've done a ton of research, it feels very dismissive of you. But when a person asserts a strong opinion without evaluating what cut of the pie they know about that topic, we end up in these conflicts. There is a reason this person is defending a position about why running is dangerous. Is it guilt that they don't run? Or is it that they've actually had experience with running that led to an unhealthy outcome? Is it some other factor or religious belief that you don't know about? A lot of times what we're doing is we're debating at this sort of surface level and We argue, people tend to argue two ways. They argue what they think are facts or they argue their personal experiences. But all of what we know is a mixture of all of those. The facts aren't just facts. They're what we say about the facts. It's not just that running exists. We can all agree that going faster than walking is called running. It's what we say about running that gives us a flavor for what we believe. And so when we're looking at any issue, whether it's a political one or a religious one, we have to invite ourselves first to be self-aware about what components are a part of that opinion. So how do we talk to our kids about this? Yeah. So I like to start outside of politics and religion. A lot of times when we say critical thinking, people just move into those two arenas because that's where opinions seem the strongest. Mm -hmm. But with our children... 
what it means is giving credence to the facts and data and research they can gather for themselves, their direct experiences, their hunches, their tentative beliefs. So let me give you a great example. Let's say you've got an eight-year-old and it's time for dinner. So you say to your eight-year-old, hey, honey, go wash your hands and then come to the table. And this eight-year-old who's done that every day for years suddenly says, yeah, I'm not going to wash my hands. Usually parents move into one of two camps. The first camp is do it because I said so. This mm -hmm. is the old authoritarian model. Today's parent doesn't believe in that model. They think they're doing something entirely different. I call it the manipulative authoritarian model. It's the same thing, but they manipulate their kids. And this is how they do it. They say, oh, honey, here's the reason you must wash your hands. And because they think they're giving them a reason, they think that means they're not strong arming the kid. But the reason rarely relates to the child. If we say to a child who's eight, oh, honey, you must wash your hands because there are these invisible germs that live on your skin. And if you ingest food with those germs, it could make you sick. And then you will not be a happy person off to take care of you. So that's why we wash our hands. Does this in any way necessarily address the reason the child didn't want to wash their hands? Mm. All we're doing is appealing to a bigger authority than ourselves. And we're saying, without thinking about it, trust that the authority I'm appealing to has equal authority in your life. Without any experience, without any data collection, without any research, without verifying my findings. So it's just a more sophisticated game of authoritarian control. For critical thinking, and by the way, you can't do this with every single thing of your life or you'd never get anything done. <laughs> you'd be so exhausted. <laughs> you would be exhausted. So do this like once a month, once a quarter with one child. But here's what you could do. You could say, oh, that's interesting. You washed your hands yesterday before dinner. Today, you don't want to. Tell me more about that. I just don't like washing my hands. Okay, can we get more specific? What aspect don't you like? Um, is it the water? Yeah, I hate the water. Okay, is it the temperature? Maybe we could get a little thermometer and measure the temperature and you tell me when it stops bugging you. And then we'll know from now on that when we wash your hands, it needs to be this temperature. And the child says, so you try that. Most kids think that's pretty interesting. So you could start there. And then they might still say, yeah, no, I still don't want to. So now you're like, okay, is it the wetness of the water? You're giving some context, some content to what they might be feeling. And maybe they say, yeah, I hate the wetness. So you recommend hand sanitizer. And then they're like, no, that's sticky. I hate that stuff. So now you're like, what is the reason I'm requiring this hand washing? And you might then say to your kid, I notice you really don't want to. And I seem very fixated on the idea that you should wash your hands because I have this belief about germs. So let's find out if there's another way to kill germs that would make me happy, that doesn't bug you. So you look up, you find out heat kills germs. You offer to just use a blow dryer, no water at all. And the child still resists. Okay, so now you might start asking, what are they resisting? Why aren't they accepting my germ theory? And here's what I find interesting. Most kids know when we're just reporting propaganda and not truth. Because your child just ate Cheerios off the floor mm -hmm. and they're not sick. They were just with you at Target when the baby spit out the pacifier. It landed on the ground where thousands of people have walked. You picked it up, sucked the dirt off of this pacifier and put it back in the baby's mouth. Like they've seen that your germ theory 
is fluctuating. They might not be able to articulate it, but there is a felt experience that something about this isn't aligned. So at that point, you might even say, you know what? I have this untested belief about germs. You might be right. Hand washing before dinner might not be that important. Want to roll the dice and see if you get sick <laughs> and find out. You might also check other avenues like, were you playing a game and it's taking too much time? Did I ask you to wash your hands when you could have used that time to finish your game? Like investigate it beyond your knee-jerk authority figure role so that your child can start to collect data, evaluate what they discover, see what they really think, and not just accept this well-established belief that you think they must adopt to be a good person. That's where critical thinking starts. Okay. My, my germ theory. I'm like, so if my kids have been playing outside in the dirt, I'm fine with them not washing their hands. If we've been at a museum or, you know what I mean? Like those are the germs I don't want. I don't care about the dirt. I don't want the viral germs. <laughs> Amazing. And you know what? That's worth having a conversation mm. about with your kids, yeah. but not in the shamey, like yeah. controlling way. It's like, here's something you might not know about me. I'm not afraid of the dirt, but I'm afraid of this other thing. Mm -hmm. And here's why I see it that way, as opposed to here's how you should see it. I've already drawn the conclusion for you. Now just adopt mine as a shortcut. That's what most parents do. In fact, before we came on, we were talking a little bit about Christmas, where adult parents and adult children and the grandchildren are together. What parents do for their kids is they think this way. They think, I've already lived a number of decades. I've already solved some of these things that were problems for me. Let me give you a shortcut. And then the kid, adult or child, comes back and says, well, I haven't lived all those years, and I've been drawing these other conclusions. How dare you not let me draw some of my own conclusions, even if they're wrong, so that I can grow and learn like you. And the older version of that human being who is now called a parent or a grandparent is saying, no, 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 I don't want you to suffer. And your life will be so much better if you think exactly like me. So that's a little bit what undermines critical thinking. This happens in churches. It happens in school every single day in school. School is one of the worst places to grow a brain for critical thinking. It's all about the teacher's one right answer and the students getting it right. And there's one right answer per multiple choice question, right? There aren't three. You don't have an opportunity to justify why you picked letter C instead of letter B. And yet it's possible that your personal experience, your tools for evaluation drew a different conclusion and you get no opportunity to show that. You are supposed to think, what did the teacher have in mind? Not what did I think when I was reading that question? Ooh, what's the answer for that though? Like we got to send our kids to school if we're not homeschoolers. That's true. That's why it's so important to use the off hours to investigate things like, why don't you want to wear a car seat? Mm. Why do you think staying up all night to play a video game is a good idea? Instead of just slamming home parental authority all the time. I remember my son, Liam, was a huge chess player and video gamer. Everyone admires me for the chess and they're suspicious of me for the video gaming. Same gaming, mm. same child, same interesting human being. 
And one day he told me he wanted to skip his bedtime and stay up all night playing his video game. He was about 15. Okay. And uh, he had school in the morning. He was going actually to public school at that time. And uh, I'm like, you can't do that. You've got school, right? That's the parent telling the child how it should be for them. And uh, he said, but I really want to, you know, he's 15. So then I'm thinking, do we have a conversation about health and sleep and your brain? And all of a sudden I stopped and I thought, wait a minute, I don't even know why he wants to stay up all night. I'm just assuming that the only conversation to have is why he shouldn't do it. But there must be a reason he wants to be up all night. So I asked him and he said, well, my favorite gaming partner is in Croatia. Oh. And that's when he's awake. Oh. And that's when he can play. And I was like, oh my gosh, he just gave me the perfect reason to stay up all yeah. night. Right. And ironically, three years later, he traveled to Croatia to meet that guy. Oh, that's like so this cool. was a real human being in his life. It wasn't an enemy, a scary person, a bad thing. It was a friendship. And so we had to talk about, well, how do we work with this friendship given our constraints? And he did stay up all night and play with him sometimes. Mm. And he managed his schoolwork and we figured it out. Wow. I think we're so quick to assume that we know best, that we are the right ones. And we don't give our kids a chance to determine, hey, I stayed up all night. What a bad idea. <laughs> I failed the test. Oops. Right. Or, wow, I stayed up all night and I was fine. There's an age thing to that too, though, right? Because you mentioned he was 15. Like, I can't let what? my eight-year-old stay up all night playing video games. But I'm curious, like, where that boundary lies. It's very individual. But how do you decide, like, if it's wreaking havoc on your family that you have this, like, grumpy kid because you let him stay up late, what do you do? Well, that's where self-awareness comes in. So now we actually test the theory. So let's say you do have an eight-year-old who wants to play all night. Pick a weekend. Stay up with him, make him food, be interested. He's going to get tired. Eight-year-olds don't yeah. stay up all night. So stay up <laughs> as late as he wants to. That's a fantasy. So let's investigate mm. the fantasy. What would be fun about staying up all night? What do you imagine will be different about playing video games all night than playing all day? Who do you think's going to be on? What aspects of gaming are better at one in the morning? Now, another thing I learned from another one of my boys who loved playing late-night video games is... There was fewer demands on the internet in our house at that time of day. So the games loaded more quickly, the yeah. graphics looked better. And that's a real thing. Mm -hmm. That's not just, I'm trying to be a person who doesn't care about responsibility. That's a person pursuing a goal. So I think part of where we wanna go is, like let's say you had that eight-year-old who said, I think it'd be so cool to stay up all night and play video games. What a different answer if we said, oh my gosh, what an amazing experiment. Mm. Should we try that on Saturday? I think I could do it Saturday. I'm going to do my long run on Saturday morning so that Sunday I can sleep in with you. And uh, let's see how late you can stay up. Let's see what happens. And collect the data. And let's say it was perfectly wonderful for him. And you're like, oh, no, now I'm going to have to do this every weekend for the rest of my life. No, because you're a human being in the relationship. You get to say, I'm so glad you enjoyed that. We can't do that every week, but you know what? We could do that once a quarter. Yeah. I would do that with you. And I'm so glad we found out that it wasn't what I thought it would be. Or conversely, he's horrible for the next week at school. And you investigate that each day with him. How are you doing today? Did you feel happy at school or grumpy? Are you tired or are you not? 
not in an overly monitoring way, but what we're trying to teach is for our kids to connect their self-awareness with their thinking. How does the idea I have behave in my life? Like, let's say you have a kid who really hates somebody at school. They're like, that person's mean, I hate them, they're terrible. How does that posture shape the way they behave towards that child? How are they limited in understanding why that child behaves the way they behave? We wanna connect the thinking with how they think about their lives and relate to people and behave towards others. Not just have a thought, don't reflect on it, don't see the impact of their behavior drawn from that thought. That's what critical thinking does. And most adults are not good at it, by the way. Uh, it's not common that people have self-awareness about their thinking and the impact. And it has to start with what they're seeing us do. 100%. Which is so hard. Yep. Hey, friends. This episode of the podcast is supported by Gooder, the best place to get awesome sunglasses that are affordable, functional, and fashionable. Uh, if you just go to gooder.com slash another and use the code another at checkout, that will get you 15% off your order. My favorite sunglasses with Gooder are the Amelia Earhart Ghosted Me Shades. They have some really fun, sassy colors as well. I love the electric Dinotopia Carnival shades. I also love the Flamingos on a Booze Cruise shades. But if you want a classic style, they have those too. And you can't beat this price. Go to gooder.com slash another and use the code another at checkout to get 15% off your order. All right, back to the show. Talk about how you enter conversations with people you might disagree with. I try to go in first with um, the awareness of my own triggers. So I joke about this all the time. We all have tells, things that tell us we're not in a critical thinking mind, and mine is smugness. Mm. So if I am scrolling mm -hmm. through Facebook and I see like an article a high school friend from 40 years ago posts, and I didn't realize that that's the viewpoint they hold, the first thing I feel is smug, like shocking that in 40 years they did not end up where I am <laughs> and that they never asked the right questions to have the right view. How idiotic that they follow that person or believe that way or voted this way, right? Smugness is the idea that my self-satisfied research data collection and experiences have led to an airtight conclusion. Mm -hmm. And so the second I feel that I ask myself to pause, to kind of let that run through me for a moment, and then to be curious about who this person actually is. And here's a key question you can ask about that person or your child or your spouse or anyone is, how does this view they hold make the world a more beautiful place in their mind? Because any view you hold makes the world better to you, including murderers. Mm. They're like, if I just eliminate that one person, world will be so much better for me. It's why we all listen to true crime shows. We're like, unreal that that was the solution. Out of all the choices for a better world, this is the solution. Right. But that's what drives people. What drives people to hold views is I'll have a better life if I think that way. So I always start there. And my father and I, who don't align politically, I remember we had this conversation not that long ago, about a year ago. He loved my book, which was shocking to me. I thought for sure he'd think it was some kind of 
thinly veiled political screed, you know, and, uh -huh. and he didn't. He's a lawyer, so I get some of my argumentativeness from him for sure. But anyway, he, he started to veer down this path where he was being antagonistic, which he can do occasionally. And I said, okay, dad, you said you like my book. Let's approach this, you know, belief that we don't share uh, through some of those practices instead of just arguing. Uh, would you be open to that? And he said, yes. I said, all right, well, I want to start by asking you, how is this view that you hold about free speech? That was the topic he wanted to talk about. Um, I said, we're not going to talk about personalities of people. We're going to talk about a value. What's one of your values? And he said, free speech. I said, all right, I want you to tell me the story of how your view around free speech makes this a better country. Well, here's what happened. I put him in his least defensive language. Mm. He started sharing with me his vision of free speech. And I just started asking follow-up questions. And in those follow-up questions was embedded some of my views, but they were actually framed as questions because I would say, so we got into this whole thing about Twitter, which is really funny since Elon Musk owns it now. Um, but he started saying, you know, people shouldn't be banned from Twitter or whatever. Uh -huh. And I, and so then I said to him, I said, do you feel that way about all small businesses that own social media apps? He said, what do you mean? I said, well, I own an app. Should I not be allowed to ban someone on my app? He said, you own an app? I said, dad, I'm, a, I'm an online company. I have an app with a discussion board. Do you hold me to that same standard? Should I just allow anyone to say whatever they want on my app as a small business owner, which he's always championed the cause of in the past? And there it was, the crux of our difference, two very different perspectives coming together, and he didn't have an answer. He had to actually think about it because mm -hmm. he values me, he loves me, and I was bringing in an experience that he hadn't factored into his overarching perspective. And I think that's kind of how it goes. We have to be open to the fact that people come self-interested and unaware of that. And so if we go in self-aware and self-interested, we have a leg up because now we're there aware, oh God, I'm bringing my self-interest too. Maybe only one of us should have that opportunity. <laughs> and let's be curious. It, it won't necessarily change people's minds, but you can get to a place of mutual understanding or at least a non-volatile conversation. Peter Elbow, my favorite writing guru, used to say, there's never been an editorial or an essay that has persuaded anyone. Mm. He's a writing instructor. And he says, none of those persuade anyone. All you can expect to happen when you write something persuasive is for that bit of information to finally be observed by a person who disagrees. And over time, the accumulation of repeated exposures to people who hold that view, more and more room gets created and it has to be accounted for eventually. So we can pretend, for instance, that racism doesn't exist, but the more that people keep showing us that it does, eventually we have to account for it in our solutions. That's the biggest problem in our country. We have conversion mentality. We think, okay, you don't agree with me, so I'm going to get you to agree yes. with me. But that's actually not the solution. The solution isn't agree with me. It's account for me. Mm. Account for me. So think of gun control. This is a great 
um, very complex issue. It's not I'm for it or against it. It's what is it and how many factors are there that we need to address? What I like to do is get everyone in a room who has a stake in the conversation mm -hmm. and then say, if we create a solution, it must account for every single one of those unique experiences, even the ones that seem to contradict each other. We get to practice this in our families. We have five kids, two parents, seven different views on how we should use our um, devices. How do we account for everybody in the solution? Yeah, that's a really good point. I, I'm reading, um, this is kind of random, but I'm reading Bono's book. Have you read Oh, it? I am too. Oh my gosh. <laughs> I love him so much. I can't even tell you. That's hysterical that we're both reading it. Um, I'm about three fourths of the way through. How far are you? <laughs> we're like on the same chapter. <laughs> I can't believe it. Oh my gosh. Um, well, so then you'll totally know what I'm about to say probably. Um, and just him talking about um, going to the White House and, and talking with our political leaders on both sides of the aisle and how he decided, like, the way I'm going to get to people who I might not align with politically is finding that common ground and finding that we both care deeply about something being better, even if other things we don't, you know, don't align that we believe. And I'm just like, man, I wish that everybody would see the world like that. I mean, he didn't align with a lot of things politically with George W. Bush, but like he found a way to find a common ground with Condoleezza Rice. And like, that's right. I just think most people, a lot of people aren't willing to find that, that common ground. I love that you brought that up. You know, yesterday I live in Cincinnati. Um, Joe Biden arrived with all of these different political party representatives to talk about infrastructure and the Brent Spence Bridge, which is a major thoroughfare for trucking for the whole country. It has, uh, it represents some percentage of that. And I, I thought about how we can get around, we can get together on things like infrastructure. We may not be able to as easily on these issues that are loaded with morality or they're loaded with a kind of self-interested position and all sides have that. That's not unique to one side at all. So what Bono is saying and why I've always admired and loved him so much is that I feel like he can do that sort of empathetic listening. He can kind of get beyond his ego. Mm -hmm. He's imagining that there are solutions. He's not imagining that there are right positions mm -hmm. and we are not solutions oriented very often in our current political landscape. And I do honestly blame the internet and education. Mm -hmm. I think both of those massive spheres in our lives have led us to believe that right answer thinking is more important than solutions-based thinking. And innovation in the thought world going forward has to be self-awareness, agency, and making space for accounting for the varieties of us. If we've learned nothing in the 20th century, it's that, oh, by the way, <laughs> we're not all the same. And now it's so, you know, in fact, I don't know if you saw, um, my book is behind me, but the um, the epigraph quote is Bono's. Oh, it is? It, yes, because I'm such a huge fan. We're one, but we're not the yeah. same. Yeah. We're one, but we're not the same. And to me, that is the foundation of, critical thinking. So when we talk about raising children, I think it's not possible to reform these massive institutions. 
at this stage, not in my lifetime anyway, but we can start one living room at a time where we take a child's perspective seriously and we go down that rabbit trail every now and then and give them the opportunity to gather their own data, to know their own experience, to be self-aware about the impact of how they think on how they feel and how they behave. That's what critical thinking actually is. Okay, this is kind of loaded, but um, I know you had a podcast episode on this, and I know you come from a background in the church, um, like exploring your own faith. And there's kind of two parts to this. Is is one, I find that I was I was raised in a Christian church, and as I get older, I'm I'm more and more doubtful, and you know, scared of all that stuff. But I do find myself drawn to books that I want to prove that there is something to believe in and that, you know, the, the God is there and all, all the things. And I, and I am scared. I would be scared to read a book that is like trying to disprove that. Right. So honest. So self-aware, by the way, very impressed with that. Good job. <laughs> Keep going. Um, and, and I'll mix the books. Like I'll mix the books with like these progressive thinkers like Richard Rohr. And then I'll go to like, you know, people, uh, I think it's Alyssa Childers who are like trying to go, you know, be a little bit more traditional with everything, but I, I don't want to go to the atheist books like, cause those scare the crap out of me. Mm. Um, but I'm just with raising kids. It's so difficult because, you know, we were raised like we to believe what our parents told us to believe. And if that in fact is true, I want, I want, want my kids to have that. Um, but I want them to explore too. I'm just so curious, like you're 60 in your sixties, your kids are all raised and, and you come from this place. I don't know where you are now, but what are your thoughts on all that? Oh my gosh. That's an amazing question. We could talk about it for hours. I know. Uh, It is. I remember being in therapy when my kids were young and I said to her, I said, you know, what's weird to me when I was in college. So I was in my twenties when I was talking about this with this therapist. So when I was in college, the kids who were the strongest Christians were the converts and the weakest Mm. Christians were the kids who had been raised in the church. Mm -hmm. Um, That was my observation. And I said, and I'm looking at my children thinking, I'm guaranteeing that they're not going to embrace the faith just by raising them this way. And she just kind of started laughing. And she said, honestly, um, everybody has to go on a journey. Mm -hmm. They all, every person. And so what's familiar, what you're raised with, what's familiar becomes the thing you define yourself against in young adulthood. That's Mm -hmm. what you do. And I read a book by a guy named Paul Tournier. It's called The Adventure of Living. He is a Christian psychologist from Switzerland. And in that book, he talked about how in spiritual formation, And he's talking about secular people too, not just people who are Christian, but in this notion of like worldview formation, spiritual formation, everybody individuates from their parents. So even if they retain, let's say the kerygma or the core gospel beliefs, when they get to adulthood, if they were raised in like a liturgical church, they're going to go join one of those hippie churches. Mm. If they were raised in a hippie church, they're going to go join the Episcopal church. If they were raised to believe in the charismatic gifts, they're going to go find this really fundamentalist group that doesn't believe in them. Like they're going to make it their own. Some people make their lives their own by rejecting, right? They, they say, yeah, that was for you. That wasn't for me because of whatever reasons, there's a million reasons. It could be abuse. It could be just, they learned something different in college 
the bottom line for all of this, and this was something I had to work through um, in the early 2000s, and Bono was a help, by the way, uh, was to be fearless, Mm. to be fearless. I had to work through my fears. Uh, I've told this story before, but I'll share it here because I think it's appropriate. There was a moment in my young adulthood. Well, I don't know. I wasn't that young. 40s sounds really young to me now. I like that. Yeah, (laughs) please say that's young. Okay. It was young. I was 41, 42, something like that. And I was online and everyone was arguing about everything. Pato communion, predestination, who's going to heaven and hell, Mm -hmm. you know, all those things that seemed so important to me. And we didn't agree. And I had been led to believe that the Holy Spirit or God would lead you into all truth. So I'm like, why aren't we all on the same page? That was a big question for me. And so I started, like you, exploring outside of the accepted canon of people that I was allowed to read and knew I was in sort of dangerous territory. And so one night after my husband and I went to sleep, I couldn't sleep. Mm. And I got up and I came down the stairs to this very office, to my computer, this desk, and I locked the door behind me and I was shaking so much I could not type. And I was just trying to type in this one website, which I won't name here. And the reason I was shaking and sweating and trembling is because I was afraid someone would find out. Mm. Like, what if my husband found out? And I was afraid of what I would find. And I sat with the fear and I did it anyway. And shockingly, I brought up the page and started reading and reading calmed me down. I thought, you know, these are just words on a screen. This is just these people's point of view. Oh, that's a good point. Oh, that one doesn't make sense to me. Oh, that one is really hard to read. I don't want to have to think about it, but now I did. And I just stayed with it. It was actually about an hour. Felt really good to, to face my fear. And then at the end, as I got ready to leave the room, the fear and panic came back over me. And I actually... um cleared my historical cache for like all the years on the computer. Why? Because I didn't want to die that night and have my Mm. family discover the last website I had been on. Mm. What I know today is that's really unhealthy. Mm -hmm. If you're in a context where it's terrifying to read outside what people have told you is acceptable, that's cult. Mm -hmm. That's not healthy. Mm -hmm. And so that was sort of the beginning of me grappling with how to think well for myself. And I haven't shared, uh, that's a lot of the story more than I often share, but I haven't shared what followed or where I've landed. Because for me, that puts people in the thinking of she's right or she's wrong. Yes. Instead of encountering for themselves the discomfort of not knowing. Yeah. Not knowing. How can you be in a relationship with someone who you can't measure? And can we be that for each other? Can we give each other room and space to undulate, to breathe, to reconceive of their beliefs as they grow, not have to define them and then stand on them forever? Ooh, that's good because we are so quick to judge, even unconsciously. You know what I mean? Like we're not even meaning to put people in categories. We just do. I mean, it happens automatically. When I got divorced, I lost a chunk of my friend group from college. And finally, one of them repaired with me not that long ago. She went five years silent. 
And then she said, I said, did you think divorce was contagious? <laughs> and then she paused and she said, yeah, mm. I, that's the perfect description. And I thought, wow. Yeah. And I'm so, so sorry that you went through that. I can't imagine the pain that must have been. Yeah. Thanks for saying that. You know, she said she was afraid. And I said, well, imagine how it was for me. You're one of my best friends. Yeah. It would have been nice to have support. Right. And that's not to say I don't mean that as a victim stance. I think I would have behaved just like her 10 years earlier. Yeah. So I understood where it was coming from. But wow. Right. Wow. Yeah. Divorce. Um, I think particularly like I'm at, I'm at an age now where, you know, people are getting divorced a lot. And we do get scared because we think, well, if it's happening to them, like what's going on inside my marriage? That's right. I'm That's so right. curious, you know, on the other side of it, like what would you say to people on this side who feel that way when they're scared seeing their friends getting divorced, therefore they withdraw and aren't good friends? Right. I mean, it's all understandable. I have a lot of compassion for all the sides, for all those factors because marriage is, is challenging, you know, throwing in your lot with another human being in a living in the same house way is huge. We know it from being siblings. If we were siblings, right, we're stuck with each other in the same house. And it's not always easy, even though there's love there. So imagine choosing someone you're not even related to and saying, yeah, we're going to make this work. There's challenge there. There's love and there's challenge. Divorce says the love was not bigger than the challenge. Mm. And that's a very hard message to deliver to children. Mm -hmm. It's hard message to deliver to yourself. And so people are protective of keeping that balance on the side of the love over the problems. They don't want to have to look too closely at the problems. Mm -hmm. What I would say is if you have a friend going through that, the best thing you can do is name that mm. and still be friends with them. Mm -hmm. Just say, gosh, I'm a little terrified right now that if I spend too much time with you, I will take too close a look at my marriage and I don't feel like I can withstand that, but I love you mm. and just name it. We could get so much further in all of these conversations if we'd say the truth. I know you believe this way about abortion. I believe that way about abortion. And sometimes I'm afraid if we get close to that conversation, it's going to destroy our friendship. Would be amazing to say things like that. And if we can get to that place where we say, why do you hold that view? And how does that make life better for all of us? If we can ask that question, we can actually elevate the conversation instead of debating. Gosh, what a great point to coming off of, you know, two years of COVID, because if that didn't hurt some friendships, you know, Ugh. it's like it, you know, I, I had some friends where we had some pretty strong disagreements and, and family members and man, and a lot of times with this stuff, I feel very in the middle and I feel like both sides are screaming at me and I'm in this like straight jacket, like, ah, <laughs> you know, um, and I think that honesty and also, what we talked about earlier is trying to understand why that person believes what they believe, where they're coming from, rather than just like pegging them at the, on this, this side or that. One of the things that I find really fascinating being in the homeschooling space is that the extremist, what we might label as extremists, if you give yourself the luxury of being considered in the middle, which, you know, I always joke, homeschooling's already extreme, so <laughs> how can you be more extreme? But anyway, people who are sort of really religious and people who are hardcore secular, they kind of go around the circle and end up in a similar place in home education. So when you were talking before how, about how Bono was looking for common ground, 
One of the common ground features of homeschooling is a distrust of institutions, mm. whether you're religious or secular. And then those mm. people are naturally disposed to distrusting institutions. So along comes the, you know, the CDC or the mm. FDA making declarations about vaccines and disease. It's not shocking that in homeschooling, mm. you're going to see this reactivity, right? So I think sometimes we got to like step back and kind of picture what is the whole worldview that's being protected here. Mm -hmm. um, I went on a kind of a little rant about Cal Newport the other day, because I'm reading his book, Deep Work, and mm -hmm. all his examples are men. And I am mm. a woman with five kids who worked. And I'm like, where are those four hours a day in a tower? Who's making my lunch? Who's taking care of the children, right? So I had this rant. And one of my friends said, well, he's an MIT intellectual. I think we can give him a pass. Mm. And my reaction was, no, you can't. He's Cal Newport. He doesn't need a pass. But then I stepped back and I thought, well, all of us participate on some level in this patriarchal model, all of us. And so we're trying to give our husbands a pass, our sons a pass, our brothers a pass, right? So there's animating forces is what I'm trying to say. Not all of this is pure opinion. And that's why self-awareness is so critical because we're being, we're being propelled by needs, not just by good thinking. Oh my gosh. <laughs> I think we have to record another episode because I really want to dive more into the adult parent, adult kid conversation. I'd love to do that. Okay. Oh, yeah. um, because I just got home from Christmas and in a fight really with my dad because of something he said to my kid that I said, we don't, I'm not okay with that. And it's, it's just like, man, that is one of the toughest things. And and a lot of it is what we had talked about earlier is that view of parenting, how, how much it's shifted. So, um, I think people will be excited to hear that if we dive into that more. Oh, I would happily do that. And I think with parenting in particular, we're always feeling like we're doing the best for our kids. So there's that layered generational thing. Your parents never stop parenting you. Mm -hmm. They never stop. They want to stop, <laughs> but they have conditioned themselves for 20 years of parenting. The habit is very hard to let go. <laughs> I try to remind myself of that. And anytime my mom gives me feedback that I might not be interested in hearing, I'm like, she just wants the best for me. I know that. And it's up to her and the father, you know, it's up to the parents to be self-aware enough to recognize that you have a right to do things differently, to think differently about it. We can definitely talk about that. There are strategies for how to talk to each other and be successful. And I do think that would be fun to discuss. We're going to wrap up with end of podcast, but you are a grandma. Do you live close to your grandkids? I do. I have um, two grandkids who are local. My son and his wife and their two kids live about 45 minutes away. And then my daughter lives in Mexico with her husband and baby. And I'm going to see them next week, actually. And then they're moving to Ohio in the summer. So I will actually have three grandkids in the same state, which will be amazing. And what kind of grandma are you? Are you like super there all the time. I always got jealous of the grandmas who like, were like, oh yeah, I take the grandkids every Tuesday. And I'm like, 
where's my grandma that does that? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I never had that either because I always lived far away Mm. from my parents. Um, So I actually am available for all babysitting, never for childcare. So like I didn't want to be a daycare mom, Mm -hmm. a a daycare grandma, but any babysitting. And then um, my oldest grandchild's only two and a half. Well, she's about to turn three actually. And I am going to participate with taking her one afternoon a week. So that is my new thing with her. And she's a pistol and so much fun. One thing I think is interesting about becoming a grandma is initially I thought it meant I was the third parent. (laughs) So there you go. I mean, I, I didn't know that's what I thought until like two weeks later. And I'm like, I really am not around all the time. Uh-huh. I don't want my opinion. Oh, I guess I'm not the third parent. So that's kind of an interesting way to understand how parents feel. Yeah. They feel so much ownership. It's it's hard. Oh my <laughs> gosh. We we'll talk about that too another time. That's I love that. Um all right, Julie, what's something professionally or personally that you would like to do that you haven't done yet? Oh my gosh, what a question. Personally or professionally? Let me think. Well, I really love writing, and I think the book that I haven't gotten to write yet is a memoir. Mm. So for me, that would be the thing I'd really love to do. Love it. Where's a trip or like a place that you took with your kids, you know, you can say any ages, that you enjoyed that you would recommend? Well, I went with my son and my daughter when they were already adults, so in their 20s. We went to Machu Picchu in Peru, Mm. and that was just I, I, it was just an amazing trip, just a completely unique experience. I would never have gone there if it hadn't been for my daughter. And then that same daughter and I went to visit a different brother in um, Thailand, and we went to Angkor Wat in Cambodia. And so those two places, Machu Picchu and Angkor Wat, are like ancient wonders of the world, but they were really life-shaping and beautiful experiences to have with adult kids. So those were good. Wow, you have kids that are just like travelers and you had a child living in Thailand? Oh my gosh, yes. So I'll give you a quick rundown on my kids because I'm so proud of them, obviously. My oldest uh, is a self-taught computer programmer who lives, you know, locally and is married and has two kids. Uh, My next child is Johanna and she traveled the world for two years as a single woman. Wow. South America and Asia fell in love with a man in Mexico, married him, and now has a baby. So there, she's the one in Mexico. My third child is a human rights lawyer, and he worked in Thailand for five years, and now he's in Central African Republic with the UN as um, a civil peacekeeping officer and does human rights work there. And then my son, Liam, the gamer that I mentioned earlier, he lives in Colorado and works as an IT specialist. Uh, and then my youngest is living in Los Angeles, and she is newly married and a therapist for people with addictions. Wow. That is like, (laughs) I would be so proud too. It almost makes me tear up just hearing that. That's so cool. They're amazing people. And I don't even feel funny saying it because I feel like it was their achievement. Yeah. 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 You're not taking the credit for it. No. I'm always like, yay. It all worked out. (laughs) There's a lot of stuff in there that was hard. So yay. They're doing all right. Oh, that's so good. Uh, What's the best, most recent book you've read? Um, I love that you asked that. And I went and actually grabbed it. Uh, The Accidental Universe by Alan Lightman is what I'm currently reading. It's a set of essays and it's really looking at it from a sort of sort of scientific perspective 
Um, and I'm not good at science, but I'm obsessed with Big Bang Theory reruns. And so <laughs> I wanted to read this book to understand dark matter and string theory and Big Bang and what all that stuff meant. So I'm really enjoying it. It's very well written. See, that sounds like the book I'd be scared of. Yeah, I think it would. <laughs> <laughs> but you know what? I think you might enjoy it, too. It's really beautifully written. Okay. Yeah. Um, here's the last question. What is your last message to leave with our audience? I think for me, the number one way that we grow healthy families, and every family has some measure of dysfunction, so you can't root all of that out, but it's to stay curious. It's to stay curious. Allow your children to surprise you. Mm. And when you stop being surprised by your children, it means that you're controlling them. Mm. So stay curious. Notice who they are. When they say something that you don't want them to say, be surprised by it. Don't see it as something to fix. See it as something to be surprised by. I love that. Stay curious, everybody. Thanks, Julie. Thank you, Lindsay. This was great. Thanks so much for being here today, everybody. Thank you, Julie, for coming on the show. Julie's going to come back and we're going to dive into some other topics a little bit deeper. I'm excited to have her on as a guest again. Uh, if you want to learn more about Julie, go to bravewriter.com. Go check out her book, Raising Critical Thinkers. Uh, she also has a book called The Brave Learner. She did homeschool all five of her children. If you want to connect with me, which I would love to do, uh, you can find me at lindsayhine626 on Instagram, at lindsayhine on Twitter. Learn more about this podcast and all the shows in our network at sandyboyproductions.com. Uh, come hang out at the Donna Marathon weekend with me, breastcancermarathon.com. Use the code lindsay10 for 10% off your registration. That's the weekend of February 3rd through 5th in Jacksonville, Florida. And uh, thank you to our sponsor, Gooder. Go to gooder.com slash another and get yourself a pair of shades. Use the code another for 15% off your order. Uh, thanks for being here. And we will see you next week uh, on Why Is Everyone Yelling? <laughs>